you are listening to Girovagando, the cycling podcast at the 2023 Hello and joining you once again this week from London where on Saturday afternoon King Charles III of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland and of her other realms and territories will roll down the start ramp at Buckingham Palace and complete the 2.1km journey to Westminster Abbey aboard the alarmingly aerodynamic but hydraulic suspension equipped Diamond Jubilee State Coach a couple of hours before the first leader of the Giro d'Italia is crowned in Pescara. Who knows, it could be King Kung. My name's Daniel Freebert and I'm the host of this 2023 Giro preview episode in which I'll be joined by the same podcast royalty that will be accompanying me on my and your three-week journey to Rome. Taking his place in the cycling podcast state coach, the Camilla to my Charles is a man who we're going to do our best to rough up a little bit over the next three weeks. Until now, he's belonged to the landed gentry of professional cycling as a press officer at CSC. Green Edge and Sky, their manager of Leopard Trek. But this will be his first full race in cattle class among the great unwashed of the press room, literally unwashed in some cases. Brian Nygaard, Brian, are we going to give you your proper Danish pronunciation on the Giro? I think not. Um, Brian Nygaard, we'll continue to call you that. Um, are you ready to shed your golden robes alongside me in our Fiat or I don't know what we're going to get, Toyota something probably um, over the next three weeks? I'm extremely ready, yeah. I. Uh, yeah. Not having a, I don't have a car myself. You know, we're all uh, we're a cycling family here in Tuscany. Yeah, I can't wait. actually, this is the most ready I've felt for a Giro in a in a very long time. Most prepared. Ready know. to be roughed up, Brian. I see you've got your you've got your two week stubble there. You're rocking that just in preparation. For yeah. No, I'm totally ready. It's uh, it's always the makeover a, that we're going to give you. But always a bit frugal with you, isn't it, Freeman? So, uh, yeah, cool. to it. it's definitely not when you're on board, unfortunately. Could do with being a bit more frugal, I think. The next co-host, of course, requires no introduction, no oath of allegiance or souvenir cushion covers in his honour. He almost spat out. I was going to say souvenir mug. He almost spat out his coffee. They're drinking from a lovely Stacey Snyder mug. More on that later. He requires no introduction, um, no oath of allegiance, I'm sure there would be a market for souvenir Lionel Bernie cushion covers. However, um, they have not gone into production yet. He is our unelected but unopposed head of state. Here's Lionel Bernie. Hello, Daniel. Plates, maybe, with my big face on, just to put everybody off their evening meal, you know? Or maybe... Big, yeah, just a big spaghetti place. You could dump your spaghetti on there with a big dollop of sauce on top. We've discussed this before. How until two or three years ago you weren't actually mixing in the sauce. Oh in the no, pot, no, which no. That just do, relates Lionel. to bolognese. I like, I like it on the. I do like bolognese on the top rather than stirred in. Oh, so you get a bit God. more. But other other pasta sauce has got to be stirred through, hasn't it? Um, but no, it it, it could. Persuade people to cut down on their portion sizes, couldn't it? A plate with my big face on. Once you start seeing too much of the face, you know you've you've had enough dinner. <laughs> Time to move on to the next course. <laughs> Lionel, um, you are in Giro mood because you've got a lovely Malia Rosa uh, pink jersey hanging up behind you. It looks like I'm going to ask you in a minute um, when it's from. It looks like a lovely vintage, sort of 80s maybe. It's a Castelli one, lovely vibrant pink hue. Just on that, before you tell us where it's from... I should 
plug our friend, our great friend Mitch Docker's podcast with Jai Hindley, the defending champion of the Giro d'Italia. I don't know when it came out last week or so. But there's a fantastic story in there from Jai Hindley about how he, unannounced, went to the museo, the museum on the Gizalo the day after winning the Giro last year or two days after and presented them with his pink jersey. They didn't know who he was initially, um, but it's quite moving actually the way Jai Hindley talks about having grown up. His dad was a big cycling aficionado and his dad knew all about the history of the Giro and, and Jai Hindley himself had absorbed a lot of that. And just his his excitement, not at giving them the pink jersey, but just going there and, and then eventually, by virtue of that pink jersey, becoming part of... That sort of tapestry of the history of the Giro Italia. Lionel, tell us about that pink jersey behind you. I'd, I'd like to go. Uh, that's on my bucket list. Um, maybe for the end of the season, uh, I'll head there because uh, it's uh, in Lombardy, isn't it? Lombardy, Il Lombardia country. So that's on my list of places to go later in the season. But this jersey, I actually tracked it down on, just saw it when I was browsing on eBay for vintage jerseys. It is a replica from... Either it's going to be either 1989 or 90, I think. It's actually quite a synthetic material. It doesn't feel like the modern day breathable jerseys. So I did wear it on quite a hot day, and uh, it was like boiling a bag, Bernie riding up the climbs in in that jersey. But it is, yeah. It's to me that's Laurent Fignon or Gianni Bugno winning the Giro in 89 or 90. And just down below there is the blue king of the mountains jersey which was a gift from somebody in the press room last year so i've got sort of old and new giro jerseys on my wall ready for the the big off 1990 last time that napoli won the scudetto the italian football championship we thought well actually i still think that when we arrive in italy on friday brian napoli will have just won the scudetto um they i think will probably do it on wednesday or thursday Probably, unfortunately, for those listeners who don't really appreciate the beautiful game, there'll be more talk about Napoli winning in the Scudetto over the next three weeks. Um, chaps, should we get on with the news roundup? And, and then we will move on to all things Giro. Um, the Tour de Romandie finished at the weekend with Adam Yates now of UAE Team Emirates triumphing on general classification after he also took victory in the Queen's State of Tion. 2000 on Saturday, as discussed last week. There weren't too many riders in Switzerland who will be doing the Giro, but two who are did perform particularly well. Damiano Caruso of Bahrain and Thibaut Pino of Groupama, finishing third and fifth, respectively. Also outstanding rides there for Matteo Jorgensen, who was second overall. He's also been heavily linked with a move to Jumbo Visma this week, actually. And two 20-year-olds, Max Paul. British rider, who's, who will be a new name for a lot of listeners, and Kian Uterbrooks, who is a, an unpronounceable name to most uh, listeners and indeed hosts. And um, They were fourth and sixth on GC, respectively. Max Paul, did you know much about him, Lionel? His, da- his, his dad was a window cleaner, That is, or is a window cleaner. That's about the extent of my knowledge about Max Paul, unfortunately. Well, you're one up on me already there, Daniel. Riding for DSM, a very impressive weeks riding for Max Paul. Kian Utgebrooks, uh, know a little bit more about him because Richard Moore went to see him, didn't he? In January 2022, went to visit him at his home. A really excellent episode of the podcast, which is, if you scroll back down our feed, uh, a year or year and a half, a couple of years actually, isn't it, of course? Um 
you can find that one. The youngest pro in the World Tour last season, grown up a little bit since then, a lot expected of him over the coming years. But there's another big Belgian sensation in the way first, isn't there, of course? I'll talk about snooker and Belgians this week, um, which I ignored because I don't really, I'm not a big snooker fan, to put it, put it mildly. Luca Breschel, the Eddie Merckx of the Bays. I mean, are we going to call well, him that there the first? Is already an Eddie, there is already an Eddie Merckx of the Bays because there's a, there's a prominent billiard player called Eddie Merckx, isn't there? Absolutely. I was, yes, setting you up for that. Yeah, um, well, we're not going to deviate into the world of snooker, are we? But uh, no, uh, the first not well, the first mainland European to win the World Snooker Championships. I mean, I think uh, they'll be dancing on the streets of mainland Europe. You know, already, um, you know, rivaling Remco for the affections of the Belgians. I'm mm. sure there were stage wins also in Romandie for two other British riders, two Ethans, in fact, Vernon Hater, um, Fernando Gaviria also won a stage, and Juan Ayuso. Um, as we said last week, he was coming back from his long layoff with an Achilles injury. Looked at one stage as though he was going to win that race, but struggled on the, the Queen stage, the mountain stage. The second most important men's stage race to finish at the weekend was the Vuelta Asturias. Stage winners there were Damien Housen of Q36.5. Rider you probably know relatively well, Brian, from his time at Mitchelton Green Edge. Uh, Lucky Lorenzo Fortunato of Eolo Cometa. And Pelayo Sanchez of Burgos Biace, that was a stage winner. Fortunato won the GC, and he'll also be looking for a good result overall at the Giro. Talking of Spanish stage races, the women's welter, that is La Vuelta Femenina, started on Monday with Jumbo Visma winning the opening 14.5 kilometer TTT by one second from Canyon Sram. That meant the British rider Anna Henderson would start stage two in the leader's jersey. That race finishes at the weekend at the Lagos de Covadonga. Just before we move off the topic of stage races, I'm guessing you chaps are aware of the debacle that occurred at the Tour de Bretagne at the weekend. We don't usually, I don't line what your bar was for giving results or not giving results of races. Um, the Tour de Bretagne is a 2.2 category race, which we don't usually include in the news roundup, but... Um, Yes. Explain what happened, Lionel, um, at the Tour de Bretagne. Well, there was an off-road section, which was just too off-road, really, wasn't it? It was basically slick mud, and it caused chaos. A big pile-up, lots of riders down, and recriminations about whether that section should have been even in the course, really. Uh, judging from just some you know, footage I've seen online, it does look reckless, I have to say. Um, and caused a lot of problems. Um, but yeah, these, these issues actually came up in uh, my conversation with Adam Hansen, the new president of the CPA, the Riders' Union, that episode available for Friends of the Podcast now. And in it, Adam was talking about, you know, where that line falls between a real difficult technical athletic challenge and something that is downright dangerous and there is a balance to be made between the spectacular and the foolhardy and race organizers have to strike that balance and in the case of the the race in Brittany uh, probably got that one wrong as I mentioned there the categorization of races that's a 2.2 category race I suppose the fear you know there's been a lot of talk over the years about you know the UCI appointing employing course inspectors full-time course inspectors and I suppose one reservation that people have is that the there'll be a, a higher level of scrutiny and care at a higher level of racing and then races like the Tour de Bretagne might end up getting 
sort of neglected or subject to a, a lower level of of scrutiny. But at the moment, we there isn't an awful lot of in terms of inspection. I mean, there were there was talk at the weekend that the organisers were very well aware, and I think the commissaires are very well aware that this section was going to be dangerous, and nothing was really nothing constructive was done about it. But the difficulty is, where is that line? Because the forest at Arenberg is dangerous. And, you know, if that was being included in a race for the first time, would that be deemed too dangerous? So it, it isn't It isn't a case of just saying, you know, this is, you know, it is subjective, isn't it? It isn't uh, easy to draw that line and decide um, you know, what should be included and what shouldn't. And as you've said in the past, Daniel, often the outcome determines uh, everyone's opinion and I suppose that's what I've just done there but uh, you know an unfortunate one for for the race for sure. Moving on to one day races now on Monday it was the 60th edition of Eschborn Frankfurt one day race and that was won from a 10-man breakaway by Sun Karl Andersen his first win Brian since the autumn of 2020 I I'm pretty confident that that's over a thousand days. I only know that because I was standing next to a Danish journalist, one of your compatriots, a Paris Nice, and he said to Søren Crow, and said, Søren Crow, you've not won for a thousand days. Why? And Søren Crow wasn't particularly impressed with this question. <laughs> but it's a bit, it's, it's been a barren two or three years. And, well, since that wonderful... Uh, Indian summer, it wasn't a summer because it was the COVID year and races were all postponed to the autumn, but it was an Indian summer in 2020, wasn't it? Yeah, the double stage winner, the Tour de France that year. And I don't know if you guys saw the sprint, it was extremely impressive. Like he basically did a lead out and then let out, yeah, he let out himself with tremendous confidence. I mean, he definitely not textbook sprinting, but he just looked so determined, didn't he? Well, chaps, it is that time of year. Giro d'Italia time, I wanted to ask you both first, what is it in your lives, in your worlds, respective worlds, that tell you, that what, what is the signal for you that the Giro d'Italia is approaching and about to happen? Brian? Uh, it's sort of, we're on the brink of summer now in Italy and you know I'm sitting here with the window open and it's the, that specific smell, you're going to laugh at this one, Daniel. Lionel will understand. It's the delightful smell of jasmine flowers blooming. Why would I laugh at that? I was going to say, because one of the things, you know, I mean, one of the things, I, I think of flowers in bloom, you know, famous Italian song, Rino Gaetano, the, the violets were, are flourishing. Are the violets flourishing? I don't know. I, I don't think I've ever seen a violet. But anyway, go on. The jasmine. It- yeah, jasmine flowers just below the window where I'm sitting here. And it's just, every, everything, is, everything is in bloom. It's that sort of spring is turning into summer. Uh, every, you know, it's 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 getting warm, which I'm sure you like once you once you get here. It's just a special feeling, and I've I've come to love the Giro a lot more after not having to travel to the Tour every year. All the years I've, I did the Tour, doing the Giro was sort of some years at least just a little bit, just probably that month more away than than I needed to. But now I've, I've, I've I can definitely say it's my favorite stage race, and it's it's my favorite race to travel to for a lot of reasons, not just because I'm, I'm doing it. In conjunction with you and 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 Lionel, also we Lionel, I've done a fair bit of the Giro together over the last years. It's just it's the best country in the world to travel in. It does bring its challenges, but there's always there's always a good meal at the end of it, isn't there? And yeah, and the racing is is I think you, know, you and I don't always agree at about the end that. of it. At the end of every day. Yeah, I think the um, the the racing is is 
and we'll talk about that later. I think I have high expectations to race this year, but the travels through Italy never disappoint, never ever, and and this, that's a, a fairly distinct contrast to traveling in France in my book. Let's save the controversy for the next. Let's not alienate anyone before we set off, Brian. Please, Lionel. What about you? Well, very similar, really. It's the changing of the seasons. Uh, I mowed the grass in our garden for the first time this year, yesterday, and the smell in the air is of of, of spring. Just, uh, you know, that hint of warmth. The sun was shining. I was thinking I might be able to go out on my bike at some time in May wearing, uh, you know, shorts, no, no um, leg warmers. Uh, maybe keep the arm Rent warmers full on. Full skin suit. Yeah, yeah. Maybe keep the arm warmers on, depending on how the, the the weather goes. But yeah, just that sense that summer is coming. But even on the warmest days in Italy, generally not sort of that tiring, oppressive heat of the Tour de France in July. And that does make the Giro a, a really pleasurable experience. And I must say, as the the race has got closer, I have been struck by a serious uh, case of FOMO, the fear of missing out. Uh, just because I look back through my phone at the photos from recent years and, and it's all, you know, the delightful guest houses that you pick, Daniel. The, the food is always a very high quality. I mean, we have this debate every year, but the, the minimum bar in Italy is a lot higher. The food is simpler. It's, 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 it's sort of fresher. It's cleaner. It's, it's less adulterated, if you like. And uh, it's more regional. So you feel like you're on a journey. Uh, you know, the south of Italy is different to the central part, is different to the north. And so, yeah, I'm going to be missing Italy, but I'm going to be absorbing the Giro on a, on a, a basis that, uh, well, I probably haven't done since the lockdown Giro, which, um, which I missed as well because I was stuck here thanks to the COVID restrictions. So, yeah, for me, just watching on the TV and thinking, oh, the weather looks fantastic there doesn't it look great but then looking out of the window and thinking well it's not too bad here either in the UK after what feels like a year's worth of rain has fallen over the winter something that you don't do during the tour down under I suppose <laughs> steady on Brian steady on for me chaps from a personal practical point of view I mean the, this time of year is synonymous with well loading my life into usually one or two suitcases often having to leave an apartment leave a country and embarking of on sort of three or four months where I live uh, like a, a nomad living out of a suitcase and it's quite daunting from that point of view but the Giro you, Lionel, you talked there about the how the Giro has fitted into our year and the rhythm of, of us doing the three grand tours and the Giro I think for for us has been synonymous with adventure maybe more than the other grand tours these sort of whimsical detours I mean even you and I've been talking over the last few days about what we did last year in Budapest and that in itself was an unusual experience about which we had few reservations you know because of the p political context and so on and so forth but it was very enriching um, and it was something that took us out of the context and the realm of of bike races as we have got to know them over the years and we did a lot of fun and memorable stuff there but but Lionel this year we're starting in Italy we're finishing in Italy we'll be in well I'm arriving in Pescara on Friday Brian will be there waiting for me I hope Lionel tell us a bit about what we've got coming over the next three weeks well i guess this is my armchair guide to the 2023 giro as you say daniel starts and finishes in italy bar a few hours i think it's all in italy isn't it there's a little detour into switzerland at Crans montana uh, climb 
much more associated with the Tour de Suisse or the Tour de Romandie and also the Tour de France, but the Giro will be going there. At first glance, the route looks fairly typical of the Giro, a very tough final week, lots of climbing in the final week, uh, but it's the time trialling that really stands out. There's the opening stage time trial, which is flat with a climb at the end. Nothing like the Bologna or Budapest climbs we've seen in recent years, but it's 19.1 kilometres long. So a little bit of time for Remco and Roglic to get into their stride. A very, very flat time trial in the middle of the race on stage nine, uh, 33.6 kilometres. And then a proper uphill one at Monte Lusari at the end of the race on the penultimate day. And, well, Roglic might well have a bead of sweat on his brow thinking back to La Planche de Belfi when he realises that the Giro could well come down to that final time trial. 71.2 kilometres of time trialling in total, and you have to go back to 2013 for the last Giro that had as many individual time trial kilometres. There have been years when team time trial kilometres have taken it over that threshold. but uh, So it's quite a time trial-heavy Giro, And the other stages, I would say, um, it's difficult to say from the profiles, but the sprinters haven't exactly got a lot for them. Perhaps four uh, nailed on sprint finishes, San Salvo and stage two, Salerno and stage five. Both of those have a fair bit of climbing on the way. There's Caole and then Rome in the final week. But there are a lot of Giro style sprint finishes where it could be a break. It could be a sprint from those kind of um, strong men sprinters. But it's always about the uphill finishes, isn't it? A couple in the first week. Lago Laceno is on stage four. Domenico Pozzovivo last one there in 2012. Gran Sasso d'Italia is back on the route, Daniel. We got stuck in the lift, the the, uh, the ski lift going back down the mountain there, didn't we? Or a huge queue to get down the mountain there. Crans Montana, as I said, sort of roughly the middle of the race. And then it's the final week with Monte Bondone, um, which Ivan Basso won at in 2006. Brian, you might remember that quite well. Most famous for Charlie Gore's exploits there. In- Charlie Gore, who Larry Warbass had never heard of. Indeed. We had him on a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. They did go over it more recently when Ben O'Connor won in 2020. Uh, there's the new finish at Zoldo Alto. Don't know too much about that, so looking forward to hearing about that. And then, Daniel, you can't think of Trecime di Lavaredo without thinking of Eddie Merckx in 1968. Quite a story about um, the Giro going there in 67 and 68. Uh, it was introduced by Vincenzo Torriani, wasn't it? And the first time they rode it in 67... Uh, spectators were pushing the riders pretty much the whole way up and La Gazzetta called it the Mountain of Dishonour. Eddie Merckx then uh, tamed the mountain somewhat the following year in pretty terrible conditions, I think. So that's the route. It looks to me fairly typical, uh, but maybe not as brutally hard in the final week as we've seen. I don't don't know, is it? I don't know. I think it's pretty brutal. I think they're really, again, RCS are really leaning into this sort of identity that they've latched onto over the past few years uh, of the Giro has been the, the most difficult of the three Grand Tours by virtue of the length of the stages and the number of altitude metres, over 54,000 altitude metres in this Giro d'Italia. Yeah, it's those gnarly stages, isn't it? The ones that could be a sprint if they don't race it quite so aggressively or the ones with big climbs in the middle. Um, they're the ones that really make the Giro hard for the riders, aren't they? But... Uh, Yeah, it's going to be very interesting. I suppose we should talk about who's racing because 
we've condensed the Giro down to Roglic versus Remco Evnepoel, haven't we? But it's not a two-horse race. When you look at the rest of the field, uh, there is a fair bit stacked up behind those two, but it is understandable that those two are the outstanding favourites. They are two of only four Grand Tour champions in the field. The other two, Theo Gegenhart and Geraint Thomas, are riding for Ineos Grenadiers. So that means no Jai Hindley, the defending champion, and no Egan Bernal either, who won in 2021. Uh, well, we haven't seen him back at this level yet, have we, after his crash? No, although he rode very well. He rode very well at Lombardy, sorry, Lombardy, Romandy last week, uh, eighth overall. That's true, yes, starting starting to see some signs. But no, I've sort of sorted the GC contenders into, well, they're kind of collected in a handful of teams, really. And then there's a selection of lone wolves. So Ineos Grenadiers, as I say, Theo Gegenhart, the 2020 Giro champion, going to have strong backup or you know, be equal in the pecking order, perhaps, depending on how things pan out. Timon Aronsman, Lawrence de Plus, Pavel Sivakov and Geraint Thomas. That's a pretty strong lineup. Filippo Ganna, of course, is the Italian star, uh, filling a bit of a void, a vacuum for the Italians. We'll probably talk about that a bit more l- later on. Bahrain victorious look to me like they're going for the Bora Hansgrohe Magic Square by picking a quartet of four strong climbers. Damiano Caruso, the 2021 runner-up, he's 35 now, but he is l- looking like he's going to be the leader of the team. But then Jack Haig, who's been third in the Vuelta, Gino Maida, who's been fifth in the Vuelta, and Santiago Buitrago, who was a very impressive 12th on his Grand Tour debut last year at the Giro. That's quite a formidable quartet. UAE Team Emirates do something similar with Joao Almeida as their leader, but then Brandon McNulty, Davide Formolo, and then Alessandro Covey and Diego Ulissi. I mean, Covey is the new... And Jay Vine. They are the new... Yeah, well, Covey's the new Ulissi, and then Jay Vine, who won two stages of the Vuelta last year. That's another lineup stacked with climbers. And then Bora Hansgrohe have kind of stepped away from that strategy a little bit, although perhaps it's sort of, I don't know, the, the magic square light. Alexander Vlasov is the leader, fifth in the Tour de France last year, of course. He's been fourth in the Jura before. And then there'll be Leonard Kemner, Patrick Conrad and Bob Jungles. And the other team with multiple kind of GC hopes, EF Education, Easy Post, Rigoberto Uran, Hugh Carthy and Ben Healy, a real mix there of experience and youth and kind of, you know, grinding consistency, I think of when I think of Uran and Carthy. So they're the teams that seem to have a lot of uh, riders that may figure in the GC. And then there's the Lone Wolves and it's uh, Thibaut Pino of Group Armour FDJ, yes. uh, possibly yes. Warren Barguil of Arkea Samsic, although it's a long time since we've seen him at the top level. Interested to see how Eddie Dunbar goes for Jaco Alula finally gets an opportunity to ride a Grand Tour only rode one for Ineos uh, the 2019 Giro but looked very good in it and maybe an outsider for the top 10 or 15 Aurelien Paré Peintre of AG2R Citroën the big news that we've heard in the last couple of days is that Trek Segafredo have lost Giulio Ciccone out with Covid their other option for the GC Balca Molimer. but I guess that's probably the the riders that are going to be in contention. Do you know what, Lionel? As you you talk about Trek Segafredo, I forgot to include in the news roundup that Trek Segafredo have fired this week their young Italian rider Antonio Tiberi, um, the 
rider that well we talked about it i think we alluded to it last week because we'd heard rumors that this was going to happen he of course he killed a cat didn't he in san marino with an air rifle and he was initially suspended for 20 days and we got wind that this might actually result in him being fired and that has proven to be the case they announced that last week and there are some strong rumors that he's going to go to bahrain victorious but that's obviously not going to happen in time for the giro lino that's the gc guys pretty much covered i would suggest uh, what about the sprinters well the sprinters no arno demar who's done very well in the giro recently won three stages last year didn't he no binium gamai either we think he well we expect him to ride at the tour de france instead but mark cavendish is back with astana he's won a stage of every giro he's ever ridden uh, he did pull out of the tour of romandy on the first road stage but he's lining up for astana the other sprinters caden groves alpacinta kerning was in very good form at the volta a catalunya a couple of months ago what was it six weeks ago three stages he won there uh, the one that really intrigues me is Fernando Gaviria riding for Movistar. He won a stage at Romandy uh, in the week and, uh, well, he's a bit of a nearly man. Didn't really look like he was fitting in terribly well at UAE Team Emirates, did he? But uh, maybe Movistar will work out better for him. Certainly the outstanding name in their lineup. And then Simone Consoni of Cofidis. Alberto Dainese, who was a surprise stage winner at Reggio Emilia last year, ahead of Gaviria and Consoni. Uh, DSM also picked Marius Meerhofer, who won the Cadell Evans Great Ocean Road Race at the start of the year. But I think the, the types of riders that may well have a bit of joy on those tough Giro sprint stages that aren't really sprint stages are the likes of Michael Matthews of Jaco Alula, Mads Pedersen of Trek Segafredo, Pascal Ackerman, UAE Team Emirates. So... Yeah, tricky to uh, look beyond sort of Caden Groves. I think I would expect to pick up a stage. Gaviria, we might see go pretty well. But as with the Giro every year, you know, it's not uh, easy for the sprinters to count on them having nailed on opportunities. And just a word on the wildcards, because no Gianni Savio at the Giro this year, Daniel. First time since 2017. I should reassure our listeners, though, that I spoke to Gianni a couple of days ago and he will be visiting, he will be dropping in on the Giro somewhere in his stomping ground, i.e. Piedmont in the northwest. Uh, he'll probably join us on one of those days when he is at the Giro. And um, Gianni's in good health, good um, good form. His team, which is now competing at lower level continental division, uh, level, is doing pretty well. And he hopes to be back at the Giro with a team next year. And, well, the wild cards, I mean, these are some of the teams that we'll probably see in the breakaways. Aolo Cometo have got a stage winner from a couple of years ago, Lorenzo Fortunato. Mattia Baez will probably be in breaks. Green Project Bardiani and Team Corotec as another couple of the wild cards. And they've got uh, Valerio Conti, a former Malia Rosa wearer, and Attilio Viviani, younger brother of Elia Viviani. Israel Premier Tech are another of the wildcard teams, and they have Domenico Pozzavivo. Uh, getting on a bit now, starting his 17th Giro. First one was back in 2007. If you're wondering where Caleb Ewan is, he often goes quite well at the Giro, doesn't he? No Lotto Destiny in the Giro this year. They've chosen to uh, well take a pass because obviously they're not in the World Tour. So um, didn't I think it was their choice. They didn't want to go for a wild card for the Giro. Brian, excellent overview there from Lionel, but just talking still in general terms about this uh, year's Giro, it strikes me it's an important year, it's an important vintage, if you will, for the race because, 
And we're going to talk about them in a minute. There are two big stars. There are two big hitters, two Galacticos, heavy hitters on the start line. And that hasn't necessarily been the case over the last few years. We've talked quite a lot about the fact that the Giro in Italy is is missing a home hero. Um, certainly as far as the general classification is concerned. Filippo Ganna may well take the Maglia Rosa in Pescara on, or in Abruzzo on Saturday. However, they don't have a big, they don't have a Nibali, they don't have an icon. We also, in the last few hours, we've been just exchanging sort of information, points of view about this year's Giro, and I sent you an article in which there was an alarming statistic about the kind of person that now watches the Giro d'Italia in Italy. And the average age of TV spectators last year, according to this article, was 67. Well, I'm, I'm bringing that down a bit, surely. Well, I mean, <laughs> surely. TV viewing fi- figures have been sliding over the years in Italy consistently and it, there is a sense that you know as us yes they scramble they've been scrambling for this kind of new identity for the race or to sort of solidify the identity for the race in the eyes of Italians um, that it is it is a race that, that needs a big addition one thing that I think is just to follow up on the article that you referred to about the average age of the view of the Giro we shouldn't forget that Italy is one of the countries in the world with the oldest population. It's uh, the third oldest if you look at the average, uh, the percentage of the population over 65 years, only surpassed by Japan and Monaco. It's and, and the, you know the birth birth rates in Italy are extremely low, and that's one thing that I think deserves to be said. But I, I fully agree with the Giro needing it, it needs a big vintage. You know the the race always wins in the sense that the the, the the Italians who love the Giro, they, they'll always love it and they'll always watch it. But I think their ability to claim new audience and to you know, make it interesting for, for new Giro tifosi is, has, has not been very impressive. But I think they've, you know, part of it is, is not down to themselves. They, they, they'll try and make it attractive to riders, but it's beyond their control who will, who will eventually show up. I think the parkour, the race route this year is extremely well made it's it's apart you know it's 99 percent of it is in italy i think the the structure and the architecture race they couldn't have done it any better in my opinion and then the fact that we have you know this is it's not remco's first giro but he's he's starting here as a completely different rider than when when bernal hung him out to dry in his first um, appearance and i think the the fact you know he's, he's the world champion he's already won a world so he's up against a, a very routine an extremely experienced Giro rider as well in, in Remco, and and they love they love their rivalry. You know, it's in, it's unfortunate there's not an Italian in, in the mix of it, but it's on Italian ground, and that's that's the Italian element of it. So I think that there's a lot of things that that go into to support the argument that this could be a big vintage. I, I think there's a potential potential for four Daniel Freebie wine glasses in in this one. Mm. Do you know what? I didn't even give a a rating last year probably for, probably for the better probably for the better I was so worried about the backlash because I thought it would have been a rosé like two and a half rosés yeah yeah uh, an alcohol free rosé <laughs> I think um, which is no which is in no way to diminish the achievement belittle the achievements of Jai Hindley who again you know listen to that Mitch Docker podcast um, he tells a story very well of his Giro last year picking up on a couple of things you said well no home favourite I mean one thing that I always hear from Italians and people who have done 10, 20 Giri d'Italia is that it gives a different flavour and a different 
sort of amplitude to the race in Italy when an Italian takes the pink jersey immediately on the first day. And I think that might well happen with Ganna. So that would be a good thing. I think it would also be a good thing for Remco Evenepoel, to be honest, because I see... I see Remco as a very saleable asset for this Giro. And, you know, the whole story, the backstory of him being a former footballer, the Italians will get right behind that. And Lionel mentioned the 2013 Giro um, a few minutes ago. And that was a year as well where this Giro pretty shamelessly courted and done everything, moved mountains, literally moved mountains, moved them off the route to include more time trials for Bradley Wiggins because they were desperate to have an international star topping the bill. And it kind of feels like they've done that to a certain extent. They are very, very glad that Remco has decided to do the Giro. But if you think of his likely career trajectory, you know, he we all think that his ultimate destination is the Tour de France and he'll probably go to the Tour de France next year and try and win it. So this might be the last time when the Giro is the centrepiece of, uh, of his season. Um, Roglic, you would think at the age he is, um, if he's not already sort of exiting that inner circle of the, you know, the top three or four names in the sport, then that will happen shortly. So this might be a unique opportunity for the Giro to have two riders who I think, uh, well, we, we used the, the the royal analogy or metaphor earlier on, they are you know, stage racing royalty. So I think it's important. Just on, you know, on the route as well, it's interesting that this commitment to the idea that the Giro is the, the, the most epic, the most brutal of the three Grand Tours, because one path they could have taken would, would have been to court tour riders and made tour riders think it was possible to do the double and by maybe shortening the stages, reducing the climbing. Um, but it seems like they've given up on that definitively. They've resigned themselves to the fact that no one is seriously going to have a go at both races until maybe, you know, Pogacar gets so bored of winning the tour and not that that's necessarily going to happen, but it could happen in three or four years that he decides that that's his next big challenge. Anyway, we're going to talk a lot about Remco and Rog and rivalries in the next part, but we have in our past Giri d'Italia, we've sort of dipped our toe in the murky waters of geopolitics more than maybe we have at other grand tours in that light in that vein we're going to hear now from someone who has been a feature of our Giro coverage in the past and that is John Foote professor of Italian at the University of Bristol very prolific author on modern history in Italy author of his most recent book Blood and Power the Rise and Fall of Italian Fascism and well I spoke to John earlier today about not the Giro, but Italy in 2023. Brian, you already live there. I will be arriving on Friday. But what country will we be seeing over the next three weeks? Here's John Foote. Oh, it's a great question, Daniel, and uh, nice to be back on the podcast. It's always nice to think spring has come around and the, the Giro is coming back and so on. I think you'd say to an alien, I think you say you've just arrived in the most beautiful country in the world with the most amount of artworks per head of anywhere else in the world. So you've got a lot of beautiful things to look at by miles. I mean, Italy, it's crazy when you go to provincial Italy and you find, you know, a Mantegna or a Bellini or a Perugino just in the local church. And <laughs> it's like in any other country in the world, that would be the best artwork in the whole country. And they've got like one in every little town. So you, you, you're you in and a sort of naturally beautiful, stunningly um, diverse set of climates and landscapes and 
built landscapes. So that's, you know, the first thing that probably the alien will notice. But then they probably notice that it's a country very much dominated by cars and roads and lorries and motorways and and they think well why is everyone going everywhere in cars and why are they polluting why why can't i breathe might the alien might be saying <laughs> why is this country so why is everybody like sitting in these metal things an american alien might not think this <laughs> an american alien yeah might think oh they all look at these wide open spaces but um yeah. i think in terms of car ownership italy has for quite a long time been up there with you know almost beating most countries in the world and that i mean it's a little bit of reversal of that but it's been you know a car loving society for a long time i think there's a little bit of turning the tide uh there the other thing i'd say you know if you tried to explain the political landscape to an alien you could you know it would be very hard because you'd say the person in charge of italy joined a party when she was a teenager, which um, exalted a man who was shot dead in April 1945 and hung up by his feet in Milan. And and she's really never left that tradition. So you've got a very, very bizarre historical political situation. You're talking, of course, about, for those who don't know, you're talking about Benito Mussolini. Yeah, Benito Mussolini was the dictator of Italy, uh, whose reign ended in April 45, finally, and was killed by partisans and hung up by his feet. And and Giorgia Maloney, the Prime Minister, currently Prime Minister of Italy, comes from the tradition of neo-fascism, which, which for a long time, and still, many of its members um, exalt or celebrate the figure of Benito Mussolini. So it's a very odd situation for to try and explain to anybody how this could happen you know, people often say that in, you know, the fall of the Berlin Wall, all the ideologies died, communism died, but fascism didn't, and neo-fascism didn't. It kind of continued in this weird substrata of Italian politics and then and kind of took its opportunity very well in, um, in, in, a, the, in the kind of political emptiness of COVID and... And, you know, that's that's the prime minister. And, it, and it's it's a constant discussion that's going on and very, very bizarre and weird every day to see what, what happens uh, on that front. And I suppose our other, if I was one more thing I'd say to the alien is you're in a very kind of wealthy society. Um, and if you were an alien 50 or even 50 years ago, but say 70 years ago, you'd, you'd be in a society which was in many cases would not that far out of feudalism and grinding rural poverty and and terrible lack of education and and that's you know really that transformation is extraordinary and that's something you could try and explain to the alien about how that rapidness of that and you know that rapid transformation into a post-industrial society is is very striking in someone like Italy I think. John, I don't know whether the advent development of social media is the catalyst for this, but it seems to me that in every country in the world, pretty much there are more, there's a more kind of acute self-consciousness about the sort of mood of the nation and the identity of, of any given nation at any time. That's certainly, I mean, it's certainly happening, I know, in the UK because of... Um, for various reasons there's a lot of talk about the UK doing badly um, economically and in in other ways 
We've talked before about the way Italy sees itself at any given time. How would you sum that up at the moment? How does Italy feel about itself at the moment? I think it feels, you know, there's this kind of ongoing, and I'm sure we've talked about this in previous, is this sense of crisis, uh, which which never seems to to lift. It's at the same time a political crisis, an economic crisis, a, a social crisis, and it sort of hangs over like a shadow. And it kind of has been around since 2008. And there's no real sense of moving out of that. And, and you can see that in the, the way the newspapers report debates, kind of cas- catastrophe, disaster, crisis, constantly part of public um, discourse. There's a very, a very high sense of unease and division um, around almost everything. The relationship with Europe, very kind of crisis laden, the, this war on the doorstep, because it really is on the doorstep of Italy. You know, the, the impact of the war on Italy is, is immense, the Ukrainian-Russian war not least because there's a million Ukrainians in Italy. And I think, you know, sort of a sense of, yes, a very wealthy society, yes, a very kind of society with which has made vast progress, but never really feeling at ease with itself. And um, and that, I think, is, is still there, very much still there. It, it is interesting that you have the first government for a long time which is actually political in the sense that it's it's not a crisis government, it's not a a government of emergency, which you've had a lot of in Italy, these kind of people stepping in, bankers Mm. usually, and saying, we're going to take charge, it's an emergency. So this is actually, whatever you think of the current government, it is a political government. It It has its own political solutions and ideas about how to resolve the crisis. But it doesn't really talk up Italy, even bizarrely, despite mm. being a very nationalist, even they have a, you know, this discourse of a failure, decline, crisis, mm. which I think is everywhere at the moment. I mean, who, who isn't talking like that now? Nobody, really. The Cycling Podcast at the 2023 Giro d'Italia is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. The Cycling Podcast daily coverage of the Giro d'Italia will be supported once again by Science in Sport who have sponsored us since 2016 and I really remember very clearly how much of a game changer that support was back in 2016. Very much a project that was instigated by Stephen Moon, the CEO of Science in Sport and we are very grateful to him for kicking off this relationship which has lasted so long because that backing was what persuaded us, enabled us really, to travel to the Giro d'Italia for the first time in 2016 and offer all of you out there daily coverage of the race. And we've gone from strength to strength since those days, but we never will forget the key role that Science in Sport played in fueling our journey to the place that we are in now. And they can fuel your ride because the... Diversity of initiatives that science and sport support is quite remarkable. They, of course, partner with the Ineos Grenadiers team right at the pinnacle of the sport, really. And they have also been supporting the Tour de Lunsar in Sierra Leone. And we'll hear a lot more about that as the Giro gets underway. And they're also fueling a very good friend of mine, Andy Brown, who, well, not only is he a friend of mine, he's a very adept bike mechanic, and I owed him a favour, so I got him some beta fuel for his training camp in Mallorca, which he's on now. And if you're listening, Andy, I hope that you're managing to stay on the wheel, or better than that, actually. You're a little bit worried about how you get on uh, out there in Mallorca, 
training with some pretty fast riders but uh, hopefully the beta fuel is uh, keeping you in the pack and maybe towards the end of the week you'll be stretching clear of them anyway i sent him off with a good bundle of science and sport goodies and if you want to get anything from science and sport to fuel your rides go to scienceinsport.com well, it wouldn't be the Giro d'Italia or indeed any Grand Tour without a collection of Stacy Snyder ceramics going on sale, would it? She's been hard at work in her studio, putting the finishing touches to her collection of cups and other items, and they will be on sale on Saturday, May the 6th, the opening day of the Giro d'Italia. The times are 10 a.m. in the U.S. East Coast, 3 p.m. in the U.K., 4 p.m. in Central Europe, and the place to get them is Stacy Snyder's Etsy page. We will put a link in our show notes, but also sign up to the 1101 Cappuccino newsletter and there'll be a link direct in that this week. You can sign up to the newsletter on Substack. Just search for The Cycling Podcast or go to thecyclingpodcast.com and there is a link to sign up to the newsletter there. No Lionel Bernie souvenir plates, spaghetti plates, as yet. <laughs> but watch this space. Stay tuned. Lionel, also on sale is our Girovagando wine selection. We have curated that with Greg Andrews and Luciano Girotto of Divine Sellers of London. Uh, you'll find information on that well, on our social media channels, but you can go to www.divinesellers.com to buy the case. Just look for... The Cycling Podcast, they've got a sort of subsection in their shop. There's also, we released a podcast a couple of days ago, didn't we? Vino Vagando, it's me, Greg and Luciana talking talking exclusively about wine, really. Um, we, there'll be a bit of wine chat over the next three weeks. But we're going to limit it because we know it's not for everyone. Um, we're going to ration Brian. I'm going to ration myself. Maybe wine might get a mention every couple of days, very briefly at the end of the podcast. I'm just, so, I'm just reading stay, Brian's facial expression here. He looks sceptical. <laughs> yes, he looks so like, I, he, he, so looks like he wants to wants to back out, Fausto Masnada style, and not start the <laughs> <Yeah>. year. <laughs> oh, uh, we are we are passing my hometown during the Giro, um, so you know I I I feel like I, I there's a there's a there's a time and a place for everything, and those days I'm, I can just basically overcompensate and run amok. And then we can just go back to the frugal living of Rebe for the rest of it. <laughs> there was that Giro. There was that Giro when Lionel was working. Sorry, Brian was working for Team Sky, where he just abandoned the race to go and load up on Bar- Barolo. I think he told us once. Yeah, um, but it was during the night, and no one ever noticed. <laughs> <laughs> Chaps, let's let's talk about cycling. Let's talk about the Giro d'Italia. Um, and a Giro d'Italia that's been billed, rightly or wrongly, as a clash of the titans. Could be one of the great jewels of the Giro d'Italia. Now, the greatest jewel in Giro d'Italia history, as far as I am concerned, was 25 years ago. It's the 25th anniversary this year. Marco Pantani against um, Pavel Tonkov. Special for me because it was probably the first year I'd watched every stage of, and I was at that age. That very impressionable age, Lionel. 31. Um, <laughs> yeah exactly when I was seven I think I was 17 and I was doing my A-levels just finished my A-levels and I really I just lapped up every stage I was a big Pavel Tonkov fan and it was Tonkov Pantani head to head every day Tonkov who bears a slight physical resemblance and to Primoz Roglic I would say and also in his demeanor you know sort of very icy figure and um, it was interesting you know this is the third time now I've plugged Mitch's podcast but it, it, Mitch and Jai Hindley in that they 
both talk about how they sort of fetishized and mythologized the 2003 Tour de France. And it really, I really identified with just the sort of emotions they were describing because I felt very much the same about the 1998 Giro d'Italia and the Pantani against Tonkov duel. Remco versus Roglic. Do we, do we think that it's going to be one or the other? Remco in L'Equipe this morning said he thinks it's 50-50. Um, Rog has beaten Remco this year. Beat him in the Volta Catalunya last time they had a duel, which turned quite spicy. Um, there were a few moments in that race where there seemed to be a bit of antagonism. Do, 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 you, think it's, do you both think that it's going to boil down to one versus the other? Yeah, I do. I think that's that's the rational approach. You know, it's, unless you have a crystal ball that can imagine accidents or illness, it's it's. I, I think that's a that's a straight up manuscript in the sense that they are the big favorites. But the interesting thing about the the Giro and the um, and the team selection this year is that there are other very strong riders who can I think benefit from that rivalry in the same way that we saw, for instance, Carapaz benefit from the rivalry between. Nibali and uh, Roglic in 2019, because once two riders are that sort of, uh, when they go head to head and when they when they look too much to each other, a lot of other things can happen. And I think the parkour lends itself pretty well to to something where to other, an ambush. Other, yeah, yeah, maybe not an ambush, but parts of the race where a lot of people talked a lot about those time trials, which I think. If it wasn't for Roglic, you know, who's the Olympic champion and a great time trials himself, it would it would be not too easy, but it would be far more easy for Remco to do his thing, you know, because he is potentially of those two the the, the better time trials. But Roglic is, can defend himself. But I think for the other parts of the race, when you look at how hard the last week is, a lot I think they will try and like limit the damage to how they use their team and how big how deep they need to go in the middle of the race. Where others they don't have to and they can create. Um, I think different kind of excitement that will put them under pressure because they can't, they can't control three weeks like that. And it it, got, it actually comes back to what you said. It would be better for Remco if Ghana won the opening time trial um, because it's way too early. Yeah, I also think that because I, you know, talking about I mentioned in the last part how saleable I think Remco is, and you and I both seen and Lionel will have witnessed it as well. But particularly on Italian TV, when they have a big foreign star, and we saw that for years with Contador, they fawn over the the foreign star, and and Rai Television, Italian Television, will particularly with Remco, they will be all over him, and he will be the centre of attention, and you know he'll be asked every morning about, as I said, the, the whole football connection. Italians are football mad. And I think that Ghana could be a convenient shield for some of the attention in those first few days. I mean, this is not the Tour de France, so the the pressure from that that draw is is less. But he'll, I think, Remco will be in the white jersey quite early in the race, so he'll have to be, he'll have to find himself in the mix zone every day. And by the time that he's, you know, done with that, you, we all know the logistics of the Giro and any stage race. Roglic will be halfway you know in his in, in his slippers to the to the massage table and those are all those are all things that that will wear will wear on you in in the in the three-week stage race that's a good point brian actually because uh aesthetically remco evenepoel in the world champions jersey 
obviously won't get to ride in it in the time trial. And if he has a really good time trial and he's in the white jersey, that does take a little bit of that sheen off, doesn't it? The, because the Italians are so um, keen on their aesthetics. You know, they, they do adopt foreign stars you far more readily. superficial? No, no. I, I just think they understand the history, the weight and the symbolism of that jersey, as, as all cycling yes. fans do. And when we're talking about the kind of the broader audience, you know, there is a frisson when you see... Uh, the rainbow jersey. Theoretically, we might we might not even see Remco in the World Champion jersey during this Giro. Which is a yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, if he if he has a good time trial but isn't in pink, it could be yeah, it could be a little bit of a damp squib. That maybe they need to negotiate with the Giro organisers and put some rainbow bands on the white best young riders jersey. I don't know. I mean, that's probably pushing it. Probably a, a really dour UCI rule that prevents them doing that. Um, it's the sort of thing that you, you'd have to be Lance Armstrong to get away with, wouldn't you? I think he he had a bit more clout when it came to that kind of bureaucracy. But uh, no, I think. Uh, the, the the Giro will be defined by this rivalry between Evenepoel and Roglic and the Volta a Catalunya really whetted the appetite for it because they I was going to say they took lumps out of each other which of course they did but we talked at the time about how Roglic seemed to kind of play with Evenepoel a little bit didn't he, he kind of tempted him into doing too much or just you know sat on his wheel a couple of times and was just an annoyance then when we saw Liège Baston Liège Daniel and I both remarked on what a patient calm mature performance that was in Liège Baston Liège he perhaps could have gone earlier he could have been more flamboyant but he didn't he got the race won and over three weeks he's going to be have to be much more that kind of Remco Evenepoel than uh, you know trying to shake off Roglic in the first half of the race and uh, that's that's probably not going to happen. Roglic is too wily a character. You know, he's got bad memories of the Giro in a sense, hasn't he? Because he was in a great position in whichever year that was, 2018. 2019. 19. 19. Yeah. And uh, came undone uh, with a week or so to go, wasn't it? It was dropping down into Como. Yeah, and, and I mean, we talked a lot at that time about how he perhaps had been undone by doing the Tour of Romandy, the, you know, the 10 days before the Giro, and how that made the Giro into almost a four-week stage race spread over five weeks. You know, neither of them are going to have that uh, situation. They're both going to be fresh. They're both going to be raring to race. And they although, although, Lionel, I guarantee that, and I have looked at the weather forecast, there could be some rain in the first week, and we'll be in the south, and there'll be a lot of talk about greasy southern Italian roads. There could be some crashes. Hope We very much hope that Primoz Roglic doesn't crash. However, if he does experience problems in the first week, the narrative will be... Roglic lacks race sharpness because he hasn't raced since Catalonia and he should have done something else before the start of the Giro. That will be the narrative. One thing that I always, from what for you said, if you stack up the teams against each other, you know, that, that one big time trial is sort of in the middle of the race just before the first rest day. And I don't think uh, Remco show is here with as strong a team as Roglic nor as Tao Gegenhardt, Darren Thomas, and also as Jao uh, Almeida, who is you know, probably also a candidate potentially for the podium. And if the, the thing for Roglic, if, if, sorry for Remco, if he gets into pink too early, having to defend, let's say, from the second time trial all the way to the end, he's going to be in trouble, in my opinion. That's a very, very far away from Cesena to, um, to the last time trial. And uh, that will that will make for a very interesting race because he will have to gain a huge advantage, in my opinion, on that sec- on that second long time trial in Chesina. Uh, so that should be quite interesting for the dynamics of the race. 
Yeah, because we'll think of it as this battle between the two of them, but Evenepoel and Roglic will want to shake off everybody else as well. That's uh, that's going to be the fascinating thing about it. And you mentioned the two teams. I agree with you that uh, Jumbo Visma, it's not their Tour de France team, of course, but there's a lot of power in that team and experience. They've got Cohn Bauman, who won two stages of the Giro last year. Robert Hessink is, is one of the most experienced riders around. Sepkus is the climber extraordinaire. And Daniel's favourite rider, Jan Tratnik, uh, is a, a diesel engine who can, you know, ride flat, ride the mountains. A uh, bit of a question mark over Tobias Foss, the world time trial champion. Suspect he may not start, Daniel. Do we have a confirmation yeah, of that Yeah, I got yet? some information this morning. No, I got some information this morning that Tobias Foss might be ill and may not be starting a quick stop press here because after we finished recording we received the news that we've been expecting that is that the world time trial champion tobias foss is out of the giro with illness he contracted covid at the tour of romandy so jumbo visma have had to replace him they've also had to replace robert hessink who is out of the Giro with the same illness. And so in come two riders with a lot of experience, both former Giro time trial stage winners, Jos van Emden and Rowan Dennis. Dennis, of course, was also instrumental in Theo Gagan-Hart's victory for Ineos in the 2020 Giro, but not ideal preparation for Jumbo Visma, replacing two of their preferred eight-man lineup for the Giro. Let's hope that that is the end of the last-minute changes to the start list before the big start on Saturday. The Sudal Quickstep team, although perhaps the names don't leap out quite as readily, uh, Jan Hurt had a very good Giro last year, didn't he? Really strong rider with Antomarsh. It switched across to Sudal Quickstep. And uh, the rest of the team, more or less the team that supported Evenepoel at Liège, Baston Liège. And we remarked on how well they rode, you know, over a very tough course deep into the race. You know, Louis Vavecca kept coming back, kept coming back. Uh, Ilan van Vilde is a good climber. Uh, we've seen a lot of that this year already. So not like it's a, a weak team for Evenepoel at all, but they're going to have a lot to cover, aren't they? And... Uh, well, I remarked on it at the start. There are teams that have got numbers. Bahrain Victorious, Ineos Grenadiers, uh, UAE Team Emirates and even Bora Hansgrohe. So both Evenepoel and Roglic will be allied in the sense that they will want to whittle down some of those other teams. They don't want to be going up against three or four members from uh, any one team because that makes it complicated for them. So they won't be able to just sit and wait Evenepoel can't just sit and wait for and hope that you can take out a, a decent gap in that time trial and think that that will be enough. They're going to have to go out and race on the opportunities that the first half of the course presents, I would have thought. Well, Lionel, you mentioned Liège-Baston-Liège there. Remco Evenepoel, of course, took his second consecutive win in La Doyenne a couple of weeks ago. And a lot of the, you know, I've talked about this weather vane of preference for Roglic or Remco. And if it is sort of leaning towards Remco Evenepoel and the bookmakers certainly have him as their favourite over Roglic, it's partly due to his performance, uh, Liège-Bastogne-Liège, and partly as well due to some of the stories we've heard about some of the training sessions he's been doing at Altitude, the long period that he spent at Altitude this spring since Volta a Catalunya. Just to dig a bit deeper into that and get a bit more information about exactly how he has prepared for this Giro d'Italia, I've been speaking to one of the Sudal Quickstep coaches, Vasilis Antostopoulos, who has been with Remco Evenepoel at Altitude for a long period this spring. He's not Remco's main coach, that is Kern Pilgrim, 
but Vasilis Antostopoulos has certainly, well, he's witnessed exactly what Primoz Roglic is going to come up against at the Giro. So let's hear from Vasi now. Vasi, when you, with Kern Pilgrim, when you started thinking about this season and you started thinking about the altitude camp that you were going to do before the Giro, just talk to me a bit about the timing of it and what's the what's your current thinking as a coach about what you need to do at altitude and how long the effects last. Just just talk a bit about you know, you're thinking about the altitude camps this year. Yeah, the whole programming starts already from uh, November on. When we set the targets for each rider, especially when we talk about our big riders, you know, like Remco, like Julian, the guys that we want to perform uh, Grand Tours, then we start uh, building backwards the periods of the training camps, the races they need before that. And so on, uh, going backwards, you know, from from the target race like Giro now. So we start uh, preparing the season from Giro backwards, uh, you know, ending with a camp in uh, in December. So we start on the reverse side, as as I can say. So we know the dates of the Giro. We know these dates. Remco needs to be in the top form. So we start filling up the piece of the puzzle backwards. So what we did, we have the, the Giro. Then we knew that it was good for him to do a, a race before that. Liège Baston Liège was the perfect the perfect race. And then uh, we planned the training camp in altitude before this race. Uh, then we put a good uh, preparation race, which was Catalonia. Before that, before Catalonia, we did again uh, an altitude race. And uh, before that, we had uh, two races. Uh, that was UAE and uh, Argentina as a preparation races. So that's how we, in general, uh, built Remco's plan towards the Giro. And I'm talking about his performance team. Uh, of course, the team is led by Kuhn Pelgrim, who's the head coach. And uh, we just sit all together with the DSs and make, try to make the best possible plan for him. I mean, we've seen Pogaccia, for example, He's had an incredible start to the year and I think a lot of people have read, have heard that he ha- he hasn't done any altitude camps so far this year. What what would be the difference between, you know, if you put if you prepared for a Grand Tour, someone like Remco, if they prepared for a Grand Tour without going to altitude versus having done the camp that you've just done, how much difference it, would it make to someone like Remco, do you think? Uh, I think the difference would, should be around around three to five percent in the in the performance, and also you know the one of the reasons that you do also a training camp is uh, the team bonding. So imagine we have a team that's gonna do the Giro or any other Grand Tour, and they spent three weeks all together training together, sleeping together, uh, socializing together. So that creates also another another effect, psychological effects but also the psychological ones, which mm. is really, really, really important also to me because they know what they need to do and they they come close during those camps and at the end, they raise as a team. It's not like bringing, you know, nine different, eight different riders from uh, several places and they put them in one race uh, just the day before the race starts. Now we're talking about the whole group who is training, sleeping, eating together, and then they go to do a, they move as a group to do a race. So to me, that's also a really, really important factor 
in uh, building up a team towards uh, a big target. Either it's a one-day race or it's a ground tour. With so many guys spending a lot of time altitude these days, including a lot of guys living at altitude, one thing I've heard quite a lot over the last couple of years is riders have bad seasons or bad periods. And then on reflection, they've said, uh, maybe I stressed myself too much at altitude or maybe, you know, I'm living too high even, I've heard some riders say. I mean, how conscious were you in Tenerife? Uh, you know, I guess Remco is someone who wants to do a lot and he wants to push himself. Uh, how much of a risk is there when you are at altitude? Everybody reacts differently. So we try to to measure everything from day one. So there's an adaptation phase. The, uh, the first week when we're up in altitude, uh, when we don't do too much and we try to monitor uh, you know how the athlete's body reacts day by day mm. you know taking the, the weight uh, uh, measuring the saturation the blood the uh, hrv racing heart rate in the morning yeah. you know all those are factors you, are you using so, H, are you using hrv quite a lot now because some coaches are a little bit skeptical about how useful that is uh, uh, I'm trying to gather all the data and yeah. then uh, at the end of the day, there's always an evaluation. Okay. I'm also a little bit skeptical, so I don't take for granted everything that I see on the on the new gadgets, you know, on the Garmin, yeah. on, uh, uh, on everything. But uh, I'm just trying to collect all the data uh, and analyze at the end of the day those, the, those parameters with the training that we do the heart rate response compared to the watch and everything. Yeah. And then, uh, then I can see if the rider is responding well or not. Uh, so I, I think the secret, the secret, if we can say that there's a secret going up to altitude is not, not to overdo it because we have to remember that the, uh, the recovery period is not the same when you're in altitude uh, compared to when you are in a, in a low level. You need more time to recover, and also when you sleep in 2,200 meters altitude, it's like you train two or three times per day mm. because your body just simply can't recover fast enough. That's why you have to adapt the training and to build a, a training plan that, uh, as a coach, you know that's going to work for your rider, for your athlete. There are many occasions uh, that uh, riders and coaches try to overreach, to overdo it while in altitude. And then at the end they pay for it because they are, the rider goes out really fatigued and uh, uh, really tired and sometimes overtrained because of this uh, process. It has to come from uh, from the coach's uh, uh, you know experience with the outcomes and his knowledge about uh, how to how to proceed train-wise. How much has your understanding of altitude training changed over I don't know five or ten years? How different is what you have athletes doing altitude now compared to what you would have done five or ten years ago? The more altitude camps we do, uh, the more data we have and the better understanding of the physiology of the response of the rider uh, becomes. So I think in every training camp, we find something more. We discover something more, something new and we try to just adapt our training. For sure, my personal uh, uh, idea about the training camp has changed in the last three, four years that uh, I'm doing more and more training camps through the year. The training plan that I would put for a rider now, it's really different to a training plan that I would do to a rider five, three, four, five years ago. But again, not every training camp, all training camp is the same. 
every training camp has a target. So, for example, the camp we did before Catalonia was more intense in order to prepare the riders to get the intensity in Catalonia. The camp we did now between Catalonia and uh, Giro uh, was less intense with more volume because the group did a lot of intensity during Catalonia. So mm. we just uh, focused more on uh, some other aspects like uh, endurance and torque towards the Giro. And the last week now, before the, the last 10 days before the Giro, uh, the quality comes after they come back from the camp, from altitude. Just looking at the, the course, uh, the Giro, I mean, it's, I think it's 5,000 meters of climbing more than the Vuelta last year, but that's, you know, it's kind of usual for the Giro to be slightly longer stages, longer climbs, more climbs. Do you think that there is, well, did you try to really adapt Remco's training to a large degree compared to what he did at the Vuelta, or is it more or less, do you think, the same kind of preparation? Are there things that you need to add, particularly because it's the Giro and not the Vuelta? This year we have three TTs at the Giro, so we put emphasis on the TT work, and especially this is what it's going to do now, the last days before the Giro. He will do some uh, specific TT sessions. And uh, also, we want him to be in the best possible shape at the last week of the Giro, where it's uh, a really, really hard mountains uh, week. Uh, so we try to add as many altimeters as possible during our rides there, especially in Teide, to, to get the masks used on the long climbs, on the, long, uh, on the prolonged duration of, the, uh, of climbing. And I think this is something that's going to help him a lot towards this uh, this last week on the Giro. Even if, Vasi, we're talking about, well, that's five weeks away from now. So, you know, you did those exercises, you did those sessions maybe one or two weeks ago. So you're talking seven weeks before he comes to those challenges. It's still useful. Yes, yes. Uh, as I said, the, the focus was mostly on the long duration. So on the long duration... Quantity and not quality. That quantity will stay in the legs for the next uh, five to seven weeks, as you say. We want to increase the quality just uh, those days before the Giro comes. Talk to me about well, any interactions you had with Jumbo Visma while you were there um, and Roglic and how, how aware were you or are you in those situations of what they're doing? Oh, you know, it's, it's a funny situation because there is one hotel and every team wants to go uh, who wants to go on Tate stays in the same hotel. So at one time, it was uh, uh, Sudal Quickstep, uh, Jumbo Visma, uh, Astana, uh, Bahrain, uh, Eolo. So we had five teams in the same hotel and the five groups of riders who are living every day around the same time for training. So it was like being in a race. But uh, no, I think it was a relaxed and a funny situation, you know. Uh, living with together with uh, the group of uh, Roglic of Jumbo every day for training, come back about around the same time. Uh, it was a good fun. It was something different, but it was a good fun to socialize with these these guys because at the end of the day, they're all professional riders and they all do uh, the best for their job. As a coach, when you watch Remco or when you look at his numbers, what is the single most impressive thing from your point of view? Yeah, we did the. One last uh, key session just before we leave uh, Teide, before we, we end the camp. 
And uh, based on the results that I saw in that session, I said that uh, Remco is going to win on Sunday. He's going to win on New Year's. I already said to the staff that were there, you know, the showingers, the mechanics, uh, I said, guys, Remco is going to smash it. There's nobody who can beat him uh, after what I saw today. So after we left, I was pretty confident that uh, Remco was, was in a really good shape to win in New Year's. Even Pogacar, you knew that you confident they would beat Pogacar, yeah? You know, at the end, we don't know what would have happened, but uh, I, I was pretty confident that uh, Remco would be the winner that day. Well, chaps, I thought that was interesting. Just hearing, well, one thing that particularly struck me there was what Vasi said about his confidence that Remco was going to win Liège. And there is this feeling that Remco just has more power than, well, not just Primoz Roglic, that than pretty much anyone, Tade Pogacar included, that he is taking nukes to races and that no one is able to deal with it. I found myself, when I was thinking about this episode and what we were going to say about Remco and Roglic, I found myself trying to imagine how Primoz Roglic, in my mind's eye, what would a Primoz Roglic victory look like? And I thought back to the Vueltas a España that he's won the three and this notion of roglification, how he roglify these short uphill finishes, these little rises at the finish, taking a lot of bonus seconds and looks at the Giro route and there aren't too many finishes that lend themselves to that. And I found myself again leaning towards Remco. Another thing I just, another point I just make and something that should whet our appetites and all of our listeners' appetites is that Although the Italian press has lost its idols and has lost its, you know, those great, well, we talked about rivalries earlier. One of the features of the Giro was the way they would pit these Italian stars against each other and they would they would just whip up these polemiche, these controversies between, these phony wars between Italian riders. I still think they have that propensity the Italian press even though it's a reduced Italian press pack we don't get you know La Gazzetta dello Sport as we'll hear in a few minutes they're not going to be sending 10 journalists they'll send a couple of journalists Chiros there with um, I think Luca Gialanella but I I still think a Giro press room has the ability more than at the other Grand Tours to make a sort of storm in a cappuccino cup and I think they will do that with Roglic and Remco especially given what we saw in Catalonia, it will not take much. And it's going to be interesting to see how Remco deals with that. Because he does like to communicate. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago. He's not someone that's going to shy away. He will be in the mix zone. And he likes to talk. Roglic will give the same monosyllabic answers that he always gives, which are an effective shield. But Remco will not do that. For this equation to really turn into reality... It'll, you know, yeah, Remco can say a lot of things and, and he, he's also sometimes prone to say things that he probably shouldn't, which is great. But I don't think it'll establish any provocation in the, in the mind of Roglic. I, 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 I don't see that possible. I don't think it'll have any impact on, on how Roglic uh, will go on uh, to try and win the Giro. I think Roglic will, on the other hand, in the race, try and provoke Remco and then Remco might say things afterwards, but I don't think that's going to be detrimental to to Roglic's options. Quite to the contrary, actually. What do you think Primoz's trash talk is like? <laughs> I find that completely <laughs> impossible to imagine. <laughs> you know, there's just, and we spoke about that before. There's just such a stark contrast between 
how explosive and, and almost flamboyant he is in any final that he rides to win to his, you know, to, you know, it's, it's like reading the phone book, you know, listening to him doing interviews about his own exploits. So, yeah, that contrast is definitely there. Whether, whether Roglic is looking up the history of Anderlecht Football Club just as a way to sort of get <laughs> under Remco's skin, you know, point out that they're on some losing streak or something, I don't know. That would be Roglic's style, wouldn't it, I think? Yeah, they're just totally. sitting on Remco's wheel, pointing out that they've just lost 2-0 at home. To but I think that there's, there's a point here that goes beyond, you know, us being humorous about it. And for me, that is that, that Roglic can only win this Giro if, if Remco makes mistakes in my opinion. He has to build his victory on Remco's mistakes and he has to find those throughout the three weeks in the same way that he would usually roglify those finishes because I don't really see a scenario where he can just, you know, even if he can do it with the best of, of the rest most often, you know, for the bonus seconds, I don't really see him being able to do that with Remco and Remco is someone who just because of his, his this quite distinct ego that he has, he doesn't want to lose to Roglic in any kind of types of finish but I think Roglic will have to basically plan on as much as he can obviously try to find or, or make or somehow have Remco make mistakes in the same way that Bernal did in the Montalcino stage when he completely sidelined um, Remco in you know on the dirt roads of Tuscany. I mean we did see him do that in Catalonia didn't we I mean he, he teased the odd mistake out of uh, Evanpool in in the space of a week we we mentioned it at the time and that laying the foundations for those mind games uh, that might well be his his best bet i mean when you look back at, uh, at how that race finished i mean there was absolutely clear daylight between the two of them and the the next uh, well the best of the rest was almeida 211 down over the course of a week uh, roglic i would suspect would not be unhappy if there were a fair few other riders within closer distance of Evenepoel, just to give Evenepoel more to worry about and more to watch and more to mark. And when he is isolated in the final climbs in that last week and it's down to man against man, it isn't just the two of them. And that probably, you know, Roglic has to start laying the groundwork for that right from right from the start and get in Remco's head. Just imagining how he might psych him out what's the belgian equivalent of a of having a cappuccino after 11 o'clock i don't know taunting him with that kind i mean of they'll thing. have them at six o'clock with like whipped cream and and chocolate flakes on top of it and they, they even admitted it's actually called a cafe fakert in um in flemish which directly translates into a wrong coffee so they they know it's mm. wrong and yet they still do it well, if he carries on doing that, he'll be, I don't know, he'll be extradited, he'll be exiled before he gets to Rome, so there's nothing to worry about Primoz. Well, I'm looking forward to waving you chaps off to Italy. Uh, very much looking forward to listening to the podcast, pointing out all your mistakes on a on a really demoralising WhatsApp group, I'm sure. That will go down well, won't it? Uh, but our Jura coverage will be kicking off on Saturday. Team player. <laughs> no, I'd be encouragement all the way. I'm not going to do a rog Well, you're on in you. the podcast line. I, don't I know. Give people the impression that you won't be. You know, you. I'm going to be here with uh, the the illicit 1101 cappuccino break, aren't I? I'll, I'll probably point out all of these these things that you've missed in that section. I don't know. We haven't quite worked out what that will be yet, but I'll be popping up every day in the podcast, and you'll be there on the ground, and it will be very much our regular Grand Tour coverage. Daily episode starting on Saturday. 
Uh, think we're going to do the press conference episodes on the rest days. I'm, yes, we I'm, are. I may even drop in to pose the questions or, or help tee up the questions for you on those couple of episodes. Kilometre Zero, of course, our kind of magazine show released on Monday, Wednesday and Friday mornings, taking a look at a different aspect of the Giro, sometimes a deep dive into an interesting uh, discussion or talking point or aspect of the culture of Italy and the race history, that will be, well, the first one will go out on the free feed and maybe another one will go out on the free feed midway through the race, but the rest will be available for friends of the podcast subscribers. Your support is really important to us, uh, especially now. Go to thecyclingpodcast.com to sign up. And I mentioned earlier about this time of year being the time that you can get rid of leg warmers and arm warmers and uh, ride in well nice summer cycling kit it's the time to get the cycling podcast jersey made by map designed by map as well go to map.cc to check out the cycling podcast range i'll be out and about in my jersey over the next three weeks on the the roads of uh well not watford well i know at the start of this episode we were played in as always when it's giro d'italia time by amara terra they provide the soundtrack for giro d'italia coverage amara terra is spelt a m a r a t e double r a and well regular listeners will be familiar with their output you can listen to them on spotify Bandcamp. you can also buy their cds there for anyone who's in london this saturday and is not otherwise engaged with coronation shenanigans. Um, they're playing at Jam in a Jar in Green Lane. And they're also playing on 29th of July at the WOMAD Festival. You spell that like WOMAD and WOMAD. Remember them, Lionel? I do. Very much. Um, band yeah. from, the, from the 1990s. And well, they'll be providing all of the music in our various episodes throughout the Giro d'Italia. Talking of music... I'm looking forward to seeing you. I'll see you in Pescara on Friday. But Chiro, let's talk about what we're going to find, what we're going to see, what we're going to experience. Let's go straight in on this. About a week into the Giro when we go to Napoli. It's going to be a city in, I don't know, in ecstasy. Exactly. And uh, dear listeners, uh, as you can um, easily imagine, uh, in that stage, uh, um, cycling uh, is not going to be my priority. But uh, it's also true that it's not news because or less, uh, in every stage, cycling is not my <laughs> priority. But uh, especially in Naples stage, even if uh, it will be a different stage from last year, eh, comparing with last year, because last year was uh, a circuit more or less around the city of Naples and nearby. On the contrary, this year, obviously, the, the start and the finish will be Naples, but the stage will go around the Amalfitan coast and the coast near Sorrento. And it's, and it's really an important stage, dear listeners, because I have two apartments, one in Vico Equense, one in Torre del Greco, two. and both of these two... I didn't, didn't realise you were a property magnet, Chiro. Yeah, 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 exactly. And in this stage, uh, Vico Equense and Torre del Greco are two towns 
in which the stage uh, goes through. So it's my stage, dear listeners, definitely. Wow. Um, well, Chiro, um, we are going to have to talk cycling at some point. Yeah, I know. This preview and during yeah, the yeah. Giro, unfortunately. Um, let's go yeah. back. Let's wind the the wheel, the clock back to the start of the Giro in Pescara. Um, obviously, it starts with the time trial. I made a prediction a couple of weeks ago. I don't think your boy, Filippo Ganna, although he will be the favourite, I don't think he'll be in the pink jersey um, after that stage in Pescara. How confident are you that he can beat Remco Avenepoel and take the Maglia Rosa, the first Maglia Rosa of the Giro? I mean, I don't think that uh, certainly uh, Filippo and Remco are the two maybe main contenders for the first pink jersey, but... Uh, there are also two guys, as Primoz Roglic and Stefan Kung. Also, these two guys can be really competitive. So we know that Filippo uh, already took the first pink jersey in 2020, his first Giro, and 2021 is the second one. But uh, this year, I have also the impression that uh, could be more complicated so i won't be surprised if uh, at the in the evening of saturday for example remco will have rated the pink jersey but uh, i think that filippo will be definitely in the contention for the jersey did yes. you ever get your top ganna felpa was that last year you were desperate to get one of these sweatshirts uh, these ganna sweatshirts oh uh, yes, uh, it's certainly less important that our T-shirt, no Chiro, no Giro, <laughs> by far, really, uh, less important. Chiro, talking about new things, new wardrobe, new new year, yeah. new new Chiro. Um, you're no longer yes. the shadow of Vincenzo Nibali. You, uh, no, you're exactly. an orphan of Vincenzo Nibali. The Giro is orphan yeah. of the Vincenzo Nibali this year. Yeah. Um, talk to us a little bit about... Italy and the Giro. I, I was reading an article earlier about the, the average age of TV viewers um, in Italy who watch the Giro, and it is incredibly old. 67.5, I think the average was last year. Um, that was the figure quoted. And, okay, we've all, we all agree that cycling is going through this very exciting new age with a lot of stars, but they're stars who come from, in a lot of cases, new territories for cycling. Italy doesn't have a big star. Nibali's not there. Uh, Giulio Ciccone, who's, who was the local boy in Abruzzo, is not going to start. Um, how much excitement is there going to be, if any, in Italy about this Giro? It's correct, certainly. It's not a great moment for Italian cycling. But at the same time, I think that the atmosphere of the Giro, it's in any case a party for Italian peoples, you know. There was a really famous... Italian journalist and Italian writer Indro Montanelli, you know, and uh, in an article in the past, uh, he wrote that the Giro d'Italia has uh, this special power to make uh, Sunday every day of the week. In my opinion, it's correct because the atmosphere, it's, it's uh, in any case, uh, a really great atmosphere. Uh, thinking about Italian riders is true without uh, Vincenzo. Yes, he is no longer my shadow. I think this interpretation is, uh, is better. Without Ciccone, I think uh, the main cards for Italy, we already spoke about Filippo Ganna for certain stages, time trial, also some breakaway, maybe. 
the other guys uh, could be Lorenzo Fortunato. Recently, he won uh, Vuelta Asturias. Damiano Caruso was third in mm. the Tour of Romandy. Why not? I don't think that uh, he has great ambition uh, to go for the GC, but uh, he could win uh, some stages. Why not? Well, in general, yes, the, the new era of this uh, five or six cycle is really stronger than others. None of them is Italian. It's also true that comparing to the past, cycling is worldwide. Uh, uh, there are so many countries comparing with the past more competitive. So it's becoming more and more difficult. And the last thing I would like to underline for our French listeners, uh, certainly French has had uh, the world champions for two years and a lot of strong riders also in this period. But their last Tour de France is still Bernard Hinault. In the meantime, Italy, in a certain way, won two Tour de France. So, I mean, for more or less for every traditional nation, apart maybe from Belgium now, times are more difficult. Mm, or Spain. Ciro, last thing. We don't usually speculate too much on the cycling podcast, but I would mm. ask you to indulge us and speculate a little bit about who's going to win this Giro. It's ah. a Remco or a Roglic? A little bit more from Remco. Not, um, uh, let's say, uh, uh, if we have to do a cake, uh, let's say 55% Remco, 45 Roglic. I'm a little bit... Uh, more fascinating from Renko. I mean, in, in this year, also Primoz, uh, in my opinion, is more open with the public. Also, his relationships with the press uh, has improved. Um, I like a little bit more Renko for two reasons. I mean, in a certain way, a little bit more historical because we are talking about the the, world cha- the current world champions that can win the Giro. And the last time has been exactly 40 years ago with Beppe Saroni that won the Giro in 83 after mm. the victory in Goodwood in 82. This is the first season. The second one in, is that um, I like Remco when he answered to the question to the press. He gives me the impression to think about his answer. He tries to do interesting answers, an interesting background uh, Technically speaking, I mean, a question mark can be the team for him. Maybe Jumbo on the paper can be a little bit stronger. And certainly the question mark of the third week that in the Giro normally should be harder than Welta. But uh, why not? And more. And uh, also the last Belgium has been uh, 45 years ago in Johan de Moink. And just as a curiosity, uh, in an interview of... Uh, uh, two years ago, more or less, Remco told me that uh, his butcher, uh, the name of his butcher, when uh, where his family uh, by meet in Belgium, uh, his name is Demuink. Wow. So I don't know if, uh, yes, dear listeners, I mean, uh, you Under don't. About uh... 50,000 Demuinks in Belgium. <laughs> yes, exactly. But uh, you have to consider that maybe I gave the impression that I'm not really focused on cycling, but I know a lot of things. Certainly, at the same at the same time, I know 
really more things about holidays and beaches. This is for sure. Well, but, uh, Chiro, it's pretty clear. You think Remco is going to make mincemeat out of Primoz Roglic? Uh, Chiro, I can't wait to see you. I'll see you at the seaside in Pescara on the Adriatic coast. Um, what are the beaches like down there in Ortona? Exactly. It's not bad. Certainly a best start from my point of view than Budapest. Certainly a marvelous capital, marvelous river, but river uh, are not... uh, Exactly, exactly, exactly. Chiro, see you on Friday. See you. Keep in touch. Well, wasn't that wonderful to hear Ciro Scognamiglio, our friend, companion of many Giri d'Italia will be again this year. Um, Hopefully won't be quite as busy as he was last year when he was a very elusive figure. We couldn't get him on the podcast as often as we would have liked. A couple of extraordinary revelations there. First of all, Ciro, the Napoli stage won't be covering that, will he? be out collecting rent from his tenants by the sounds of it. (laughs) I mean, I hope his maths is better because I think he said that he's leaning 65 Remco 45 Roglic, which of course adds a, up to a, 110. A cake that consisted and 110% cake. It sounded like something you you would have appreciated before your weight, before your dramatic weight loss, Lionel. Well, it's the it's the ultimate sporting cliche, isn't it? Giving 110%. Maybe that's where it's coming from. I mean, that's what sets Chiro apart as well, isn't it? Finding out the important details, uncovering the fact that the Evnepool family butcher is called De Moink. Pretty sure not the same De Moink as the. Belgian Johan de Moink, who won the 1978 Giro, but does give me a good opportunity to mention a Friends of the Podcast episode I made a few years ago when I went in search of the last Belgian Grand Tour winner before Remco Evenepoel, who won the Vuelta last year, of course. It was Johan de Moink. He won the 1978 Giro d'Italia, and, well, it was quite a circuitous route to de Moink's house in East Flanders via a pretty eccentric lunch with... Roger de Vlaminck and a trip to the Eddie Merckx Velodrome, I remember. That episode is available on the Friends of the Podcast feed to our subscribers. It's called The Search for the Pink Panther. Great to hear Chiro. I'm glad to hear he'll be popping up on the podcast. Chaps, I set you some homework. I asked you to select one thing, one subplot, one whimsical detour that you are particularly looking forward to in or about this Giro d'Italia Brian well it's it's more uh, uh, an atmosphere than it's 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 a place because a grand tour is isn't is always moving you always you know changing hotels and seeing different parts but to be honest Daniel and, and you're gonna hate this because you hate a compliment more than anyone more than anyone but I really look forward to my my travels with freebie and I look forward frugal to frugal freebies. You frugal called me freebie. a few minutes yeah. ago. Yeah, yeah, I'll be, I'll be you'll busy. Be, tra- you'll be, you'll be living on San Pellegrino water and fette biscottate, fette biscottate. <laughs> There's awful desiccated pieces of building like, material. <laughs> yeah, feel yeah. like, taste like six-month-old toast. Which you know what, Brian? I've been doing some research on the route and fette biscottate. They're, they're predominantly the most popular brand in Italy. They're made in a factory somewhere along the route, so that might be one of our whimsical details. I'm sure that's what they're, what they're eating the in the graveyard Italian, of Italian cuisine. Yeah. Italian prison diet. Is, is, this, is this the little things that they have at, at breakfast? 
Yes. Because yeah, I remember... Yeah. But I there's no such thing as we Italian were. breakfast. No, I remember... I can't remember where we were, but I was with some British people who were trying to spread jam on them as if they were, like, toast. And, and they just disintegrated into dust. And I just... I just gave them a kind of a, a British shrug. And also, we'll be we'll be traveling a fair bit in the south of Italy, which is it's only the Giro that really takes me there. And and it's and that's maybe that's just um, my feeling. I, I think that I like it a bit more than you. And and there's always because of the diversity of Italy and because of how different it is. From I'm I'm not living in the northern part. I'm sort of living in the middle part. But I I like the south. And if I should mention one thing and I know that Chiro did it as well in what we just heard we'll be in Naples shortly after they're going to win the Scudetto which is going to be you know it's going to be blasting it's going to be like you know they, they're going to be able to see on the, on the seismic aperture for how big of a bang that's going to be so I, I look forward to seeing the aftermath which is probably still a full-on party by the time we get there I hope we're not part of the aftermath I hope we're not collateral damage in the aftermath of those celebrations there'll be like a uh, new Pom pompeii of like biscottini rolling down yeah, yeah yeah uh pompeii of course we went to last year mm. we enjoyed that we that was unexpected an unexpected highlight of last year's giro wasn't it lionel oh very much yeah fantastic um had never been probably wouldn't have gone and just to see pompeii and and uh and stroll around there and, and try and come up with some kind of cycling related jokes about uh about the the big cobblestones and whatever else we talked about the the nonsense we came up with that was a real memorable day but i'm yeah missing naples is a, is a big regret because i felt like we we didn't dive deep into uh napoli last year we just sort of saw the outskirts a little bit would love to go back maybe uh, it'll be on the route again in a future year but i look at the course and just think uh, well what's what's on the menu i mean give me two or three things that I'm going to be missing that I can maybe make make badly at home. There's going to be an awful lot about food in our coverage of uh, this year's Giro d'Italia. We'll try and keep it unobtrusive. If you're not, if it's not, you know, your favourite subject, the thing you're most interested in, then we'll, you know, we'll shove it towards the back of our episodes. But we've got a big interview. I did a big interview a few weeks ago with a, an Italian food heretic, uh, an Italian professor who has made all sorts of scurrilous claims, scandalous claims, like the fact that carbonara is an American dish, that pizza was popularized by the Americans, and so on and so forth. And I think that will be, uh, well, that will be a fertile topic of conversation for us and of debate for our listeners, I'm sure. Can't wait. Can't wait for that. I was hoping that someone would pick something to do with the race, Lionel. Well, yeah, I mean, recency bias here, but uh, and maybe a slightly obvious one, but one that will interest the sort of the British and Irish audience. Very much looking forward to seeing how Theo Gagan Hart does. I mean, really good signs of form at the Tour of the Alps. Um, you know, lots have been said about you know his form in Grand Tours since winning the Giro in 2020. I've got a feeling he could be in for a good three weeks here, not least because the team around him is is so strong. And then because of the way he rode uh, in the classics, Amstel Gold Race and Liège-Bastogne-Liège, especially Ben Healy in his first Grand Tour, really looking forward to seeing how he does, you know, again, in a team where he can contribute to the the, the the hole but he can ride a little bit in the kind of the shadow and the slipstream of Rigoberto Uran and Hugh Carthy and and learn along the way and a kind of a, a Ben Healy of a few years ago Eddie Dunbar who I mentioned earlier you know 
I thought it was really unfortunate that he was kind of stuck in Ineos Grenadiers, not getting opportunities in Grand Tours to build on what was a very impressive debut in 2019. If you remember, he got in a couple of decent breaks, didn't he? And he looked, it just looks good on a bike, I think. So I'm looking forward to seeing how those three get on, especially because uh, could be stage wins, could be a podium finish for Theo Gagenhart. Who knows? speculation corner here um i'm gonna speculate i would speculate i've got no, i have no information to this effect no insights to this effect but i think the ef education will probably be releasing a non-pink jersey in the coming hours i think they pretty much have to don't they um so as not to clash if they were smart or if they were as interested in or as interested observers of all things football as lionel and maybe a napoli kind of tribute would be a, would have been a good idea but I'd probably also not go down that well with a lot of people who's the most napoli jersey who's the most napoli jersey i suppose it's aolo cometa isn't it is a sort of napoli blue astana not not really napoli blue is it as long as it's not red because that causes me trouble with Bahrain, Cofidis, Ineos and Arkea all wearing red that's really awkward um Team Corotec, I do like their uh, sort of Torino-style jersey. That's very attractive. Granate, kind of granate, like pomegranate mm. colour. Nice. I'm going to pick out a few things, chaps. Well, it'll be interesting to see how Astana get on, taking Mark Cavendish uh, with not much in the way of support there. It doesn't look like it anyway. Our good friend Joe Dombrowski is going to be there for Astana. We'll be talking to him a lot. We'll be talking to Lucky Larry a lot. I sent Larry some homework as well. He was going to send me something about what he was looking forward to at the Giro. However, um, as we go to press um, at the time of recording, Larry's not done his homework. Maybe Larry's dog has eaten his homework. Larry, we talked about Larry's dog a few weeks ago. Maybe he's doing his AG2R homework, which is, you know, riding hundreds of kilometres in training to get ready for the Giro. <laughs> yeah. probably, probably that takes priority. <laughs> I don't know. Probably. probably. <laughs> um, my things to look forward to... They're both wine-related, big groan. However, they're wine-related in the sense that I'm looking forward to seeing how Thibaut Pino gets on in his last Giro d'Italia, the last hurrah for Thibaut. Um, he's in good form, rode well in Romandy. He's being unusually, uncharacteristically upbeat about his form. So um, that has certainly raised my expectations. Could he, w I don't think he could win the Giro, but you know, he talked at the start of the season about not wanting to get in these soft, tippy-tappy breakaways and win stages that way. He wants to be climbing with the big boys and winning against the big boys. So presumably that means that if he's going to finish in the sort of top five, it's not going to be by default, thanks to a long breakaway. It's going to be, you know, riding sort of consistently shoulder to shoulder with the Remcos and Rogliches. So that's something to look forward to. Second wine-related thing, theme that I'm looking forward to, Jay Vine. One of the one of the revelations of the last couple of years in Grand Tours, one of the best climbers in last year's Vuelta a España, has been out of action for a while with a knee injury and don't know quite where he's going to fit in in the UAE hierarchy. I believe he's going to have some freedom, but of course they've got GC ambitions with Almeida, they've got McNulty there as well but Jay Vine rode well certainly one fantastic time trial earlier in the year which has you know it's got people talking about whether he might become quite soon a big GC contender I guess we'll get some clues as to where he's out with his time trialing at the weekend in Pescara but um I think he's going to be he's going to be one to watch as well at the Giro 
Can I offer Brian a little bit of advice before you two set off? Uh, Brian, oh. in, in the back seat of the cycling pod car, just have a rule where there's a line, an imaginary line down the middle of the back seat. One half is your half, the other half is Daniel's half. This is half, revenge. And that this will, is a revenge attack. That will then... This is recriminations for the rucksack of doom <laughs> narrative last year. Yeah, possibly. Where but, you're, but it will where keep, I'm still untangling myself from some of your wires. It will, it will keep Daniel... Well, I'd rather be tangled up in wires than your sweaty running kit. But it will keep Daniel's running kit on one segregated on one side of the back seat of the car and leave you with another side of the back seat of the car for your stuff. It's just a, just a suggestion. It, it, it makes for a harmonious three weeks. I have, I have twin daughters. So I'm very used to like putting a separation mark or potentially building like a safe space between them two getting in, you know, into fights. So I'm, I, uh, I feel very well prepared for that. Once you have no, kids, you know, the, the logistics just become shrug of a shoulder. Mm, that's what you think. <laughs> well... Chaps, I'm looking forward to that listening. Yeah, listening to what you know between the lines in the podcast. Just to yeah, pick up yeah. We're going to try and play nicely. Yeah, We're going to yeah, try and play nicely for great. three weeks. That's all three of us, not just yeah. Brian and me. Yeah, it's going to be great. Chaps, the countdown has begun. We will be back on Saturday after the time trial, after the coronation. There'll be a new king, and there'll be a new king or a temporary king, an interim king of the Giro d'Italia. It could be King Kung. Until then. Thank you, Lionel. Thank you, Daniel. And thank you, Brian. Thank you. Thanks, Chips. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freed, and Lionel Byrne.